Thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get started studying God's Word, I wanted to just give you a couple of quick announcements. The first one is um, I wanted to show you a quick video about uh, a partnership in ministry that we're getting started with uh, a lovely guy, Stephen Bray, who has got a vision for planting churches on the rock on, in Newfoundland and, and Labrador. So uh, we've been partnering a little bit, giving some money there and here and there. I interviewed him for my podcast. You can listen to it there, just get an idea as to the kinds of stuff that he's doing. So um, there's a video we want you to watch. The second thing is you'll see that I'm wearing a tie today. Happy Mother's Day, right? 10 years, this is my 10th year wearing a tie in honor of my mother who passed away 10 years ago. And also in honor of the rest of you ladies, I want to give you a little eye candy. You bet. Watch the video. Greetings, Northview Community Church. My name is Pastor Steve Bray. I'm the lead elder of Calvary Baptist Church here in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, on the exact opposite coast of you there in British Columbia. I get not only the joy of being a pastor here in my hometown and home city, but as you see on this logo over my left, your right, our church started a church planning ministry here in St. John's called Mile One Mission. And I'm representing on my t-shirt, our very first church plant called Kilbride Community Church. I just wanted to say hello, and I wanted to also say a massive thank you. I am so appreciative of Pastor Jeff and Pastor Mark, who I have a great friendship with, that you guys would love us and now partner with us in ministry. You might not know this, but here in St. John's, Newfoundland, we are probably the most unevangelized city, or at very least the second most evangelized, least evangelized city in all of Canada. In a community here of quarter of a million people, less than 2,000 people even attend any form of evangelical church. And our vision and our desire is over the next five to 10 years to see 10 churches planted in strategic neighborhoods all across our city. Kilbride Community Church represents our first church plant in a neighborhood of 12,000, and it's the first church in its, do in its community in 120 odd years. And I'm so excited to tell you we've already had our first convert. There's so much I want to tell you. By God's grace, as COVID settles down and vaccines rise, that Lord willing, I'll be out your way and I hope to visit your church and meet all of you. But I just want you to pray for us. Please look us up at mileonemission.ca. And my understanding is that you also have access to a wonderful podcast that I've done with your lead pastor and Pastor Jeff. Well, I'll tell you a whole bunch more information about this. So from my heart to yours, thank you. Please pray for us. Thank you for joining in the ministry with us. So much to tell you. Look us up. We'll talk soon. God bless. I wanted to show you a really quick video. It's uh, something that went viral a few years ago. Uh, there were some questions about whether or not it was staged or not. Uh, I'm not sure it really matters to me because it's quite, it's quite funny and very satisfying. So have a look.
You know, the reason that I think that it, that, that scene is funny is because uh, it deals with the concept of immediate judgment. Um, somebody does something wrong, and immediately they receive the recompense for it. I think that's satisfying, largely because it doesn't happen very often in the world. Um, I also find it satisfying when somebody's driving a really high speed on, on the freeway and they're passing everybody and they're just acting like they don't care and cutting people off all the time and then they pass a police officer and the police officer gets them. When you're driving by those people on the side of the road, you really do want to slow down and wave or slow down and just say, ah, ha, ha, see, you got it. You got exactly what was coming to you. But for the most part, in our, in our world, that's not, that's not the way it works. The people who are doing wrong get to do the wrong, and there seems to be no consequence for it. Eventually, maybe they're found out, but they do wrong, they do wrong, they do wrong, and they're able to continue. And many people just die having made buckets of money by oppressing people all, all over the place. And so... We start to ask questions about that idea, that, that, that there isn't immediate retribution. We start to ask questions, those of us who believe in God, we, we end up saying, well, why, Lord, would you allow this to continue? Why, in fact, why would you allow the, the wicked, the people who are oppressing people, to oppress the righteous and let it continue and never say anything about it? It, it almost makes us believe that you're not there or that you don't care or that you're not just. Um, those questions are ones that come up in the passage that we're going to study here today in, in Malachi chapter 2 verses 17 to chapter 3 verse 5. Um, what, you, what you're seeing is uh, Malachi giving voice to God's concern about the people complaining to him. And their complaint is largely because he's not answering their prayers for justice on others. So this whole passage has to do with God's justice. It has to do with the judgment of God, why it happens or doesn't happen at a particular time, on whom it will come. That, can you be sure that eventually it will come? And then if it does come, you know, upon whom will it, will it be meted out most specifically? All of those kinds of things about judgment. And so... Um, in the passage, I think we're going to see three things about the judgment of God. First, that we think God's judgment should be focused on them. And you say, well, who? That's what I mean. On them, whoever they are. We, we think that God's judgment should be focused on them. Second, that God's judgment serves a, a purifying purpose. And third, that God's judgment is hardest on hypocrites. Okay, should be focused on them. It serves a purpose, uh, purifying purpose, and it's hardest on hypocrites. So here's the first of those out of Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. We think God's judgment should be focused on them. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But how have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? There's a couple of lines there that I want to point out in particular. One of them is that, is that language of, you have wearied the Lord with, with your words. You know, what God is, is what we call impassable. That means that he doesn't change. 
And so sometimes when we come across something like you've wearied the Lord, I mean, the Lord is the one who never grows weary, according to Isaiah 40. He's the one who gives strength to youth. So what, what does it mean? Well, it's, it's probably just a figure of speech. We use the figure of speech all the time. I'm so sick of this. I am so tired of this happening. My sister and I used to be thrust into the back seat of the car on family holidays. Um, we would sit right next to each other in our wood-paneled Ford station wagon. Man, that was a great car. You could, those were the cars that you could sit in the back. There was a back seat, and you'd point, point backwards, and you could wave at all the people behind you. But th those were the days. They knew how to make cars in the 70s and 80s. So my sister and I would sit in the back of this car in, in the, in, uh, next to each other, but there was, there was a stitching down the middle of the seat, and um, she would get in, and she'd immediately say to me, do not put anything of your body or anything you own or anything having to do with you across that stitching, and we'll be fine. And of course, me being the young, um, kind, peace-loving young brother that I was, I immediately tried to put my fingers to the edge of the stitching. I would place all of my belongings right on the edge of the stitching and so that she would just get super irritated. And then the rest of the trip, she would say to my father, who was driving the car, he's touching me, he's touching me, he's touching me. She, you can imagine hearing this repeatedly from uh, the, the girl in the back seat and her brother you know, picking on her so that, so that she, she says it. You're touching me, you're touching me. Eventually my father would just, of course, lose his mind. And he would either pull the car over or he would just say in a very loud voice, I am so tired of you saying that. What's the idea here? God is so tired of them saying that. Now the question you have to ask is, what, what is that? What were the words that they were saying that he was tired of? And you can see it in the second part of the verse. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. That's what they were saying. And where is the God of justice? Now, what does he mean? What does he mean? Um, everybody who is doing evil is not getting... Uh, payback for the evil Lord. So that's leading us to believe that everyone who is evil is actually good in the eyes of the Lord and that he's pleased with them because if he wasn't pleased with them, he would come and he would judge them. It's, it's like if you uh, had, a, had a business and you told the, the employees, you need to be on time every day. And you know one employee showed up late the first day and you said to him, you need to be on time. The next day, you need to be on time. You need to be on time. But he kept doing it and you never did anything about it. You just kept saying it. But there was no recompense, no payback, no firing, no censure. Eventually, one of the other employees would end up saying to you, like, where is your justice? You are, where is the boss of justice? It's like, it's like you think the wrongdoing is actually good. The wrongdoing is actually right. You take pleasure in his lateness. Well, that's, that's essentially what they were doing. Like, if you didn't have pleasure in it, Lord, you would judge them for it. The fact that you're not judging them for it is evidence that you, that you like it, clearly. So it's, it's an accusation against the Lord. Now, you got to remember, a little bit earlier in the, in the book, uh, they were bringing their 
sacrifices to the altar, okay? These people who were divorcing their, their wives and living in, you know, outright unrepentant sin were bringing uh, sacrifices to the Lord and acting like the thing that God really cares about is the ritual. And when they came to the altar of the Lord, they would say stuff like, They'd cry. He said, you, you flood my altar with tears because you're crying and you're saying, why, why? And the cry of why was, why aren't you answering our prayers? And so this little passage, just like raising it up another notch, saying, why aren't you answering our prayers? And the fact that you are rewarding almost the wicked for all the bad things they're doing and you're not taking care of we, the righteous, is evidence that you have done wrong, Lord. God says, I'm, I'm sick and tired of it, right? He's touching me, he's touching I'm so tired of it. So what does he do? Well, verse one, chapter three, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, right, the one you're asking for to come and to judge, will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So the, he, he gives kind of the plan. Uh, he says, my messenger who will prepare the way before me first, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come. So there's, there's a two-stage approach now. Like God says, no, the judgment is going to come. But first, there's going to be a messenger who goes before me. And then second, then the Lord will come and bring judgment. Um, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen films or heard stories about what the Secret Service of the United States does to prepare for a presidential visit, but it is, it is a remarkable amount of stuff. Uh, there are Secret Service agents uh, you know, when we think Secret Service, we're thinking about the guys who run next to the, you know, to the limousine in the presidential motorcade and are running along with it, you know. That, that is part of what they do. But most of what Secret Service does is they, they, they go in advance of where the president's going to be, and then they, they scout it out and figure out where could somebody hide a bomb? Where could somebody, you know... Uh, be on top of a building and ready to, sh ready to shoot the president. I know in all the movies, they're like, you can always find a spot that's near the president that you can shoot him from. Actually, you probably can't because they line the streets with police officers before they come. They, they stand guard by dumpsters to make sure that, you know, they do this for days, to make sure that nobody comes and drops a bomb in the dumpster because the president's car is going to be, you know, within 100 meters of it. In other words, there's a, there's a whole lot of preparation that goes on before a dignitary shows up. And in the ancient world, that very much was the case. The roads in those days were not amazing. And so a, a, a dignitary would send a messenger ahead of time to make sure that everything was in order. And if the road coming into the town did not have, you know, all the all the paving in its right spot, you'd have to repave the road. You'd have to figure out a way, because you don't want the dignitary to come in and be in a cart that's doing this, and you know? So let's repave the road. Let's make sure everything's safe. Let's make sure he's protected. Let's make sure, let's make sure, let's make sure. So this is the image that, that Malachi's drawing on, and he's basically saying that the way the judgment's going to happen is that there's going to be a messenger, right? The, the, the secret service is going to come first, and they're going to prepare the way for the Lord, and then the Lord is going to come. 
Now, you and I, when we hear this, should immediately, those, those of you who are Christians, especially, should be thinking to yourself, right, right, in the New Testament, there's a guy, John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus, and he is called the forerunner, the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, right, to make the mountains low and the valleys raised up, uh, pre- prepare a highway for, for our God is the language that's used. And then Jesus comes, forerunner, and then dignitary. And that is exactly what Malachi is predicting here. So you're kind of going back. This is the prequel to that story. This is where this was predicted. And where God is saying, okay, when when I judge, it's gonna happen in these two stages. So it is appropriate for us to go to like the New Testament where John the Baptist describes his ministry and we can take that description and we can say, oh, That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what the Lord has come to do. Now listen, if you do that, you go to Luke chapter three, verse 15. Uh, You got John, you know, baptizing people in the wilderness and he, you know, he's weird because he wears the wrong clothes and he eats locusts and honey and people are coming out from all over the place because he's preaching this weird repentance. And so they think he might be the Messiah. So here, uh, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, look, I baptize you with water but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not water, but Holy Spirit and fire. Now ready for this? When he describes the work of Jesus, he says these words in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in other words, when Jesus comes, he's going to gather all the wheat. And this is a a figure for the people of Israel. He's going to gather them all together. He's going to put them in in, uh, his little uh, threshing floor and he's going to start throwing it up in the air and the wind is going to blow away the chaff and the wheat is going to come down and he's going to to gather it. In other words, the ministry of Jesus is going to be a divisive one. It's going to separate the real followers, the real committed ones from those who are faking it. So you can understand then why in this passage, when you go back to Malachi, the the last line, verse two of chapter three says, but who can endure the day of his coming? See, you guys have been complaining about justice. You want those guys to be judged, those wicked people to be judged. But when God comes and judges, he's going to bring his winnowing fork. Who can stand? Which one of you who is complaining for God to judge is going to be able to stand up when he comes to judge? Because you think the judgment's going to be on all those other people. It's actually going to be on you. It will eventually go to all of them, but before that happens, it's going to come to you. So Israel was crying out for judgment on the wicked, and they were angry God wasn't doing it sooner, but they... They didn't consider the wicked included them. Man, isn't this the way we work? We really do. We tend to focus on the sins of others while we excuse the sins ourselves. We give lots of grace for our own sins. We give lots of excuses for our own sins. Oh, these factors led into it, and that's why I was justified in doing this particular thing. But that guy's a jerk. He doesn't have factors. He's just evil. He's just wicked. In the book of Romans, 
you have this really interesting beginning. The book of Romans starts in chapter one by Paul using these really harsh words about sinners. He's basically saying, look, everybody's wicked. Uh, everyone turns away from God. Uh, they, they worship idols. They are despicable. They are and the words that he's using in Romans 1 are words that Jewish people use all the time of Gentiles. And so all the, all the Jewish people that Paul's writing to are probably listening to that in chapter 1 of Romans going, Yeah, you give it to him, Paul! My, you're my boy! Come on! Right? But then in chapter 2, after Paul has really given it to the Gentiles and the wickedness of those people out there, of them, he turns his attention to the Jewish people. In Romans 2, verse 1, he says, You, therefore... And he's not talking to the people outside. He's now turned his attention to the Jewish people who are cheering him on. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Judge them. Judge them, God, for their wicked acts. Yeah, but what about you and your wicked acts? Wait, what? What? Wait, what? <laughs> Sometimes uh, when you're driving, uh, you'll, you'll be cut off. Uh, you know what it's like. You, you maybe get in a, in a line of cars that are really close to each other, and everyone's kind of just obeying their, their distance or whatever, but then there's always that person who either is sick of the line, and he whips out on the right-hand side and shoots by and, and then gets up behind the big truck that everybody else is trying to get by, and then he cuts everybody off, you know? Or you're in the line at the border. Remember in those days when you used to line up at the border? And somebody comes on the side, and they want to squeeze in at the end. And when that happens, of course, um, you get really angry, Right? Uh, you, you, you do stuff like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to let you in. It's like a, it's a matter of justice at this point, right? Because I, I, look, you're cheating the rules, whatever rules there were. You're cheating it, and you're wronging all of these people, and so I'm going to stand up against you and get really tight to the person in front of me, and I'm not going to let you in, and then you might honk and stuff, but it doesn't matter. You, you don't deserve to get in. But then there's always that occasion where the flip side happens and, and you're in a situation where you've maybe have missed that there's a lineup and you need to last minute get in or you have a thousand different reasons why it is that you're going there. Maybe I, my dog is dying. I've got to get to the vet. And so you go by all the traffic and now you want to cut in. And when the person doesn't let you in, what do you say? What do you say? Good for you. Standing for justice. No, you never say that. You always say you, you jerk. You're evil, judge them, God, judge them, judge them. And we, we have a problem with hypocrisy. And it's not just in silly things like uh, decrying uh, driving habits. It, it's when we say as the church, rightfully, that look at all those sexual sinners in our community and society. God should be coming and judging these people and bringing his, you know, fulfilling his word. Look at the society is going horribly because of greed and injustice and oppression and all the things, racism. Judge all of it, Lord. But in saying that, do we ever stop and take a look at ourselves and wonder if the things we're crying out for rightly, God's justice to be displayed, actually apply to us? That if there is sexual sin in the society, maybe it starts with us. 
And if there is greed in this society, maybe it's, it, it starts with us. There's a guy named Paul Washer who did a, a, a youth sermon that went viral. It's a big, big deal. <laughs> it was a youth conference, about 5,000 students. And this was a number of years ago. It was in the 90s. Uh, he was preaching to them. He was a missionary, and he came, and he gave a very hard word. He was preaching to them about what I call decisionism. It's the belief that, you know, if I ever in my life pray a prayer to God saying, forgive me, then I'm saved no matter what happens. Doesn't matter if I live in light of that. Doesn't matter if it never made any difference to me. I'm saved. And he was saying, based upon the parable of the soils, uh, that that's not what the Bible teaches. That those people who abandon the faith or don't give no evidence that, that they're saved, that the, that the Holy Spirit is at work and bearing fruit in their lives, those who give no evidence of that are not actually saved. And he was speaking this strongly. He was basically saying, look, if your heart, you say in your, in your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and everything, but everything in your life denies that, it does not matter if you've prayed a prayer sometime or walked an aisle. You're not God's. If your life doesn't reflect that of Jesus Christ, and when he said, Jesus Christ, everyone cheered. Like they were cheering this message, right? And he paused, and he looked, inquis he looked inquisitively at everybody in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the auditorium, and he said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Right. God's judgment isn't only for them. It is. But it begins with us. So that's what I mean when I say we think God's judgment should just be focused on them. Yeah, the problem is it, it includes us. Secondly, though, uh, God's judgment on us serves a, a purifying purpose. Like, why does God then judge his people? I don't get it. They're his people. Well, it serves a purifying purpose. Look what, I'm, I'm going to read verse 2 again. Uh, the, the question's at the beginning, and then we're going to continue to verse 4. But, but who can endure the day of his coming? Nobody can. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like, and now listen to the image, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former former years. Right, a refiner's fire. So when God comes and he brings his judgment, it's going to be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. You've seen those commercials. I'm sure you have years, years ago, and they still do them now, you know, in the beginning of your YouTube video or whatever. They end up having these commercials that are trying to sell, you know, whatever soap you like, Tide, uh, Persil. I don't know. There's a thousand of them, like OxyClean. And it's always kind of the same commercial. Here is, a, here is a cartoon demonstration of what will happen when this, this special OxyClean comes into your, into your basket of clothes while it's being washed. Uh, there's a, you know, a white garment there, and there's little fake 
uh, dots of dirt and the OxyClean comes in and it wipes, it wipes that piece away, right? And it just wipes them all away and they go off to the distance and that's to say to you, this is the best soap that you could possibly get because every piece of dirt on your clothing that you can't see will all be taken, taken away. That's the image that he's working with here. He's, he's saying, look, when God comes in judgment, he, he's going to come and he's going to wipe away the, the dirt, the impurity. And that language of impurity is probably more appropriate for that first image, a refiner's fire. He's going to take the gold, he's going to melt it down, and the dross, the impurities, are going to float to the top, he's going to skim it off. He's going to separate, in other words, right, like a winnowing fork. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to separate the dross from the gold. He's going to separate the dirt from the clean garment. Who's he going to do that to? Well, we would say, well, everybody. But in specific, though, in this passage, did you see he's going to purify the Levites? The priests. Uh, the pastors. That when God comes, he's going to start with his people and judge them first. But when he judges his people, he's actually going to start with their leaders. And he's going to bring that judgment on them. And that's actually the way it works a lot of times, both in scripture and in life. God holds leaders to an accountability that ought to be taken significantly seriously. In fact, there's a couple of points I, I want to reflect on there. Um, one of them is that God, God will hold his appointed leaders accountable for what they do. Um, on, on a level more so than he will everybody else. There's a, James 3 says that not many of you should become teachers because, you know, you will incur a stricter judgment. Um, Moses is uh, in the wilderness and you know he's trying to lead the people in into the promised land he, they, they turn away of course and then he's frustrated with the people and he's supposed to get rock out of a, a stone by speaking to the stone that was the thing that the lord said to him hey you can get water god's going to provide the manna every day and the quail every day in the wilderness but the water will come out of this of this rock you have to speak to the rock but he gets good and mad at the people of israel in a grand you know flourish of hyperbole and 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 acting, he says, I'm so sick of you. And he takes his stick and he strikes the rock, you know, just for effect, bang, hits the rock. Out comes water. And the Lord comes to him and says, uh, you're not going in the promised land now because you didn't listen to my word. Now, you and I read that and we're like, wait, what? He, he didn't listen to his word. He just, like, he just struck the rock. He probably was speaking it while he struck the rock. Well, I don't understand. Why do you strike the rock? And essentially, Moses was trying to claim some glory that would belong to God alone. Look what I can do, strike. And God's like, listen, I'm not going to put up with leaders who get in the way of my glory. I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. It's going to ruin the community in a greater way than if just, you know, Joe Christian or Joe, Joe Israel is over there in the corner and he's doing that kind of thing, trying to rob glory from me. So I have a special concern with the judgment and purity of the leaders of my church and community, community of faith. Hebrews 13, 17, I have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So God is going to hold his appointed leaders accountable for what they do. 
which means that then there are going to be, and let's use this language, you know, the purifying from gold, there are going to be golden leaders. There are going to be clean garment leaders. There are going to be grain leaders. And then there are going to be dross leaders, uh, dirt leaders, chaff leaders in God's church. And God, in his judgment and his love for his people, will expose the dross. And isn't that a good description of what's been happening recently? There is a, there is a poem that was written. I've shared it before. Years ago, I've shared it with you. It's, a, it's, it's, it, it's the kind of poem that is meant to, you know, incite passion in you. You, know, I'm, you follow Jesus at all the costs. It's called Fellowship of the Unashamed. Let me read it to you. It's a, li it's a little bit longish, but I, I really want you to get the whole effect of it. Uh, I'm part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure, I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, or regarded. I now live by presence. Learn by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let go, or slow up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. See, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops, and when he comes to get his own, he will have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Ooh. Do you know the guy who wrote that? The pastor who wrote that allegedly touched 17 men inappropriately. His very large church was left pastorless in a huge scandal. Man, we make bold proclamations about how we're going to follow our pastors. We make huge proclamations. Do what I do. Follow me. And yet God takes great care. He has great concern about his church and those who lead it. And so what you see right now in our society, quite honestly, in our Christian community, is the Lord doing a winnowing work. He's going through churches and leaders people who we have read books from, people who we've listened to all their sermons, who have the grand TV ministries and radio ministries and all that kind of stuff, and he is winnowing it. 
We are finding out that this one loved money and this one was, you know, sexually exploitive, exploitative. The judgment of God is coming upon the priests. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that the Roman Catholic priests are outed, those who've been passed around from, from uh, church to church, right? It's good that those people, the, 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 the Southern Baptist pastors who've been sexually um, exploitative of those in their congregations, and then it's covered up and sent on to a new church. It's, it's important that those people be, be seen. It brings a purifying to the, church, to the church of God. And so you and I, we should not be surprised when we see that God is dealing with leaders in a significant way. That's what he does but he intends it ultimately for good, the good of the church, the purity of the church. He's burning off the dross so that the gold remains and the church is able to move forward in power. So look, if you're a leader like me, take heed, brother. Take heed, sister, lest you fall. Finally, God's judgment is hardest on hypocrites. He's going to move from the the leaders now, and he's going to apply this generally. Verse 5 of chapter 3, So I will come and put you on trial. The you there is likely a reference to the, entire, the entirety of the, of the, of the people. I will, put, I will put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. Remember, the you is the covenant community of faith. They're the people who are followers of God, who are decrying the, the wickedness of people outside their community, right? But they're also the people who are sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty, right? So from the priests to the people of faith, the people of the covenant, yeah? Religious people, we love God, people. And he says, yeah, you say you love me, but you're also sorcerers at the same time. That's a person who tries to manipulate the will of the gods through incantations or, or spells. I was talking, one of the favorite things in my time at Northview has been what I call story time with Ezra. Uh, story time with Ezra is whenever I get to sit with him, and I've been able to sit with him lots and lots of times, my dear brother Ezra from Kenya, and he tells me stories about the villages in Kenya, and some of the stories that he tells are just amazing. Some of the cultural traditions and the things that they do. He told me one recently where he was talking about what witch, witch doctors do for people who want to get rich. So if I want to get really wealthy, I might go to a witch doctor. Listen, I, this, this happens to people who are who profess faith in Christ because they think to themselves, look, God is big and he's involved in all of the big stuff in the world, right? He, he's concerned with, you know, COVID in India and he's concerned with, you know, political actors, but he's not concerned with my little issues. So when I come to him, the little issues like, you know, I want to have some more money or I want to have a husband or I, whatever, those issues are ones that I need to kind of make my own way. And so the way we do that in Ezra's culture is, well, we have to we go to the witch doctor and we find out uh, what he needs in order to make us rich, for example. 
And apparently one of the common practices is he'll say, listen, I need you to go bring me the thumb and the, and the index finger of a rich man. Because they got rich, that's how they counted their money, right? So they got rich with those, so you go get them. Now the place, you're either going to chop them off of somebody who's alive, which is very difficult to do, or you find somebody who just died, and then you chop the finger, you exhume the body, you chop the fingers off, take it to the witch doctor. So people actually need to have guardians of their graves after they die, so that people don't come and dismember them after pulling them out of the grave to bring all their body parts to witch doctors so that they can get stuff from the gods. Sorcery. Christians doing sorcery. Adulterers, he says. I'm going to be quick to testify. I'm going to put you on trial. I'm going to be quick to testify against adulterers, you know, people who cheat on their spouse. They have sexual relations with anyone other than their spouse. You know, you people who profess to follow me, says God, but you're out there committing adultery repeatedly with people, unrepentantly with people, perjurers, the people who lie, even, even though they promise not to, oh, I am telling you the truth, I swear it, I swear it, but when it, it's convenient for you to, to lie about the money that you have or lie about, uh, to lie about whatever particular issue is that will benefit you, you, you do it. Perjurers. Those who defraud laborers or oppress widows or deprive foreigners of justice. In those days, landowners had all the power. If you hired somebody, a laborer, and uh, you know, in the morning you said, I'm going to give you, you know, $10 today to work. And uh, they came, and uh, those are the, actually the salaries that we do at Northview, about 10 bucks a day, something like that. Anyway, you say, you say to somebody, I'm going to give you $10 this today. And then they work all day for you, and at the end of the day, you say, you know what, I've decided that I'm not going to give you $10. You were a little bit lazy, whatever. I'm going to give you $1. They did not have, like, a union they could go to. The laborers didn't. Uh, they didn't have a court of law that was really listening to them. They didn't have any power or sway. If they went against the landowner, the landowner's buddies with all the judges and all the others in the court. So it was very easy for people with power to leverage that power and use it to oppress other people and for their own benefit, right? But these are people who are Christians and they, and they profess faith on the weekend or they profess faith, you know, that they follow God. Yes, 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 they do all the rituals of religion, but when it comes right down to it, it doesn't play itself out in the way that they love or treat those around them. And that's his point here. All of these things, sorcery and adultery and perjury and oppressing widows, all of these things were done by those who claimed to know God. They were the ones, they were the ones who wanted judgment on everybody else, but what was going on in their own life was the same thing. They didn't take their own unrepentant sin seriously. They glossed over it. It's not important. What's important is God judging the people out there who do those things. Look, um, let me finish with this, this interesting story in, in the book of Acts where there's this, this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. There's a guy in the church named Barnabas who sold some property and brought all the money from the property to the church. You know, and he walked down the aisle and he dropped that whole pile of money before the apostles' feet. You could imagine what would happen if you were in that, in that room. You'd be like, oh my goodness, 
Barnabas is amazing, right? What a spiritual leader. What a phenomenal follower of God. I mean, he's giving, willing to sacrifice his own stuff in order to feed people who don't have. So that, you know, a lot of plaudits were given to Barnabas for this. Well, Ananias and Sapphira saw the plaudits that he was getting, and they were like, we would like some of those plaudits. So they went and sold some property, but they, they kept back a significant portion of what it was that they sold it for, and they brought the money forward, claiming it was all the money. They brought it forward the same way Barnabas did, and they, you know, smiling to everyone, dropped it before the apostles' feet. But it was only half of what they said that they had sold the house for. So they're lying about it, and they're lying to, so everybody you know, thinks they're great like Barnabas when they actually didn't have to sacrifice as much like Barnabas. Well, uh, Ananias is there first dropping this off. His wife is somewhere else at the moment. And Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And because you're doing that, God's going to strike you down right now. Boom, he's dead. They carry him out of the church. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Everybody in the room knows what's happened. And she comes in and, and Peter, sneaky Peter, asks her the question, how much did you sell your property for? Like, is the money that you've brought here the full amount, like you're saying it is? And she said, oh yeah, absolutely. You can hear the gasp in the room. <gasps> they just saw what happened to the last guy who said that. Acts 5 verse 9, then Peter said to her, how could you conspire? to test the spirit of the Lord. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down dead at his feet and the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What you've got here is a story of instant judgment. And for us, it's somewhat satisfying and yet totally freaky. Because as much as you and I want the instant judgment, we probably should be thankful that God has been patient with us. Because if it's instant judgment as a rule, then you and I are hooped. We will get struck down just like everybody else will get struck down because when we turn the the microscope on our own lives, we don't see a clean Petri dish. We see, we see dirt and grime. And we see all the things that we continue to do and we gloss over them while we call for judgment on everybody else. But if we had instant judgment, we would all be laying dead on the ground. So our assumption now is, oh, we, we won't face it. But we will face it. That was what this passage is about. You will face it. You're not, the instant judgment is not happening right now, but you will face it. You will. And so you're in between these times. What you're experiencing is the patience of God in your life. You ever gone to a, you know, near a cliff or some dangerous body of water and you know, about 10 meters behind, behind the body of water or away from the cliff, they say, danger, cliff, big sign, yellow sign, maybe orange one. Danger, alligators, danger, sharks, And there's this gap between the sign and the cliff. You and I walk in that gap all the time. We, we see the sign. P 
people like me come and they say this to you, guys, listen, there is a judgment coming and the judgment is not just gonna be on the people who you think are bad. They're gonna be on the people who are bad and that includes all of us. You think you can hide the sin in your life from God, the unrepentant ways that you gloss over and you decry in others that are, but are found in you? Do you think you're gonna hide those from him? The one who sees all? The one who knows all? So you're between the sign and the cliff and you have a choice to make. <laughs> either, either you can take this opportunity to turn, to believe the warning and say, you know what? I bet you there's a cliff over there. I bet you there is. The warning's there. I've seen instant judgment before where the sign was right near the cliff, Ananias and Sapphira. But I've been given this patience now from God and it's, cause, it's supposed to lead me to repentance. And so... Turn, 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 turn. If the book of Malachi is urging you to do anything, it's to turn away from what you're chasing that is not God and turn to him and receive all that he has to give. He is ready and waiting and willing to receive you, to bless you, to grant you riches in the heavenly places beyond all measure in Christ. But you gotta believe me that there's a cliff there, man and you gotta turn. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, by your spirit, convict us in the many different ways. There's lots of people listening to this in different situations, Lord, who have got you know, hidden things in their lives, all of us do. Little hidden ways, Father, that we gloss over that we think are not a big deal because you know, it's okay for us to do it, but you, it's not okay for others. So God, I pray that you would convict us of those, but that conviction then would lead to repentance and that repentance would lead to great joy as it always does, as it always does, Father. So I pray, Father, that your spirit would move and that we would receive the great joy that is in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.